Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Uh, We are beginning a new series today on Ephesians. It's page 976 if you're using one of the Bibles. And the pews, I'm excited today to begin this journey with you through the six chapters of the book of Ephesians. It's about really building up the body of Christ. These are exciting times at our church and in these coming months. It's going to be a lot of physical building on our church campus. Um, But we're doing that for the purpose of being able to reach people. God is building a people, the body of of Christ. So Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. And we're just going to kind of introduce the book today and sort of do a, a flyover and look at the big theme themes of Ephesians, what it's all about. And so we're going to look at those first two verses this morning of chapter 1 of Ephesians. So follow along in your copy of God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, we pray that you would bless these six chapters of Ephesians to our understanding in these coming months. Father, there's so much here about who you are, about your plan for our world and our church and our lives in Ephesians. And so, Father, as we walk through it together, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bless. Lord, that you would make these months as we are in Ephesians just a transformational time in our lives and in our church. And so we just commit it to you for your glory and pray that right now as as we study your word, that, Father, you would rid our minds of, of any distraction, Lord, that um, you would enable us really just to be able to, to focus on you, to focus on your word and what your spirit is speaking to us today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you ever have a chance to visit London, I would encourage this to, you to make this your first stop. It's... Uh, It looks like a giant Ferris wheel, and I suppose it is in a way, but it rises 450 feet over the River Thames, and it has 32 kind of people capsules on it, each of which can uh, can carry 20 people. It takes about half an hour to make the complete circle, but during that half hour, you're treated to these amazing views of the city of London. From, from there, you can see Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament and the great cathedrals and abbeys and, and parks and palaces. And it's such a great view that the attraction is called the London Eye. The London Eye. Ephesians is sort of like the London Eye of Paul's letters. Because from Ephesians, you get this sweeping, majestic view 
of all of his thinking, from here you can see God's plan, his big picture, wide angle lens plan for the world, for the church, and for your life. And then Ephesians, the spiritual riches that are ours in Christ. Paul calls them unsearchable riches. He just brings them out of God's treasure box one by one and puts them on display. And we're going to look at them verse by verse in these coming months. So let's sort of introduce things today and, and take a look at, uh, at the journey that we're going to be taking in Ephesians. The first thing that we see here in these opening verses is a life transformed. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, the fact that this guy is writing a letter to encourage a bunch of Christians is a testimony in and of itself to the miracle working power and grace of God. Because Paul had been a hater of Christians, a persecutor of Christians, had them thrown into jail, had them killed. And one day he was on the way to Damascus to persecute even more of them when he was encountered by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul was not only saved that day, but Paul was sent out on a mission to preach the gospel that day. He describes himself here as an apostle. And the word apostle means one who is sent. One who is sent. Paul had been sent out on a mission. Now, he held the office of apostle, which no longer exists in the church today because the things that characterized an apostle were things that were unique to the first generation of Christians. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection and they had been personally appointed to hold the office of apostle by the risen Lord Jesus. And they were given direct revelation of God to write what we now know as our New Testament. So the office of apostle no longer exists. But the task of apostles as ones who are sent out on a mission, in a way that applies to every follower of Christ, right? Then and now, because all of us are sent ones. Jesus says in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts 1.8, just before he ascends into heaven, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. John 20 and verse 21, which we just finished studying. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's us. And so every morning we should wake up as people who understand that we are, we've got a mission to live out. And we're being sent out into the world, into our jobs and schools and, 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 and circle of friends, into our communities as people who represent Christ and who are on a mission for Christ. And so in that sense, all of us are sent ones. 
But we see here a life transformed. Second, we see a people transformed. A people transformed. Let's continue in verse 1. Paul says he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, he describes these people as saints. Now, that means something totally different in our culture today than what it means in your New Testament. In our culture today, when we think of saints, we think of like super, super pious people, like a special category of Christians, like super Christians. That is not the way the word was used in the New Testament at all. When the New Testament writers refer to the saints, they're just talking about regular Christians. And the word means set apart exclusively for God's use. Okay, the word holy and the word saint, they come from the same root in Greek. And they both mean to be set apart for God. And so as the people of God, we are a set apart people. God has set us aside to be different from the world to make a difference in the world. In order to make a difference in the world, we have to be different from the world, right? It's changed people that change people. We have to be different in order to make a difference. And so, in a world that is characterized by people looking out for themselves, and everybody's out there, dog eat dog, look out for number one, we are called to be a people who put other people before ourselves. And we wake up each day, and we're to be on the lookout to help other people and to even put their needs above our own. In in a world where it's anything goes, morally and sexually, we are to be a people who view sex as the precious gift of God that is to be reserved for the context of marriage between a man and a woman. In a world that is characterized by materialism and self-indulgence, we are to be a people who view our resources and possession and money as not just something that we're to use on ourselves, but as resources that we use to bless other people and to build up the body of Christ and to reach more people around the world for Christ. In a world that is characterized by strife and conflict, we're to be a people who are characterized by unity and love. In a world that is characterized by self-sufficiency, self-dependence, we are to be a people who are characterized by dependence upon God and trust in God. And that's why Paul describes these people as faithful in Christ Jesus. To be faithful means that we're trusting in God, first of all, for our salvation. We placed our trust in the finished work of Christ for us and the cross and the resurrection. It means that we're trusting Him moment by moment, day by day, with the needs of our lives. And to be faithful means not only that we're trusting in God, but that we're loyal to Him. That's what it means to be faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, had these people in Ephesus always been this way? 
Absolutely not. (laughs) In fact, they were coming out of one of the most pagan places on earth, the city of Ephesus. They were the saints who were in Ephesus. And Ephesus was anything but a saintly place. But God had redeemed them. And God was, had, had forgiven them and God was making them new right in the midst of this pagan city. Now Ephesus was located in what we now know as the nation of Turkey. You can see it there on the western coast of what is now Turkey. But in the first century, it wasn't Turkey. It was the Roman province of Asia. And so Ephesus was very Roman in character. And that means that it was very pagan. It was incredibly loose morally. It was like an anything-goes atmosphere Uh, morally and sexually and all of that. And religiously, it was full of idols. It was just characterized by idol worship. The most prominent building in Ephesus, far and away, was this one. It was the Temple of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, sometimes called the Temple of Diana. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people would flock to Ephesus to go to this pagan temple and to worship the goddess Artemis. And the biggest industry in Ephesus revolved around the temple and the silversmiths would make these idols that all these people from around the world would converge on Ephesus to worship in this pagan temple and they would buy these silver shrines of the goddess Artemis. So what happened was that as Christianity began to to spread and people were turning away from idols to serve the living God, they weren't purchasing these idols anymore. And that sparked persecution and an out-and-out riot in the city of Ephesus. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Let's look at some of the background of the founding of the church in Ephesus. And because I want us to get a picture of what these Christians in Ephesus were going through in the midst of this pagan city. Acts chapter 19, and we'll pick it up at verse 23. It's talking about what what happened as the gospel was beginning to spread in Ephesus and in the surrounding regions, and people are not buying as many of these silver idols, and we'll see how that really was a catalyst for violence. Acts 19, and beginning with verse 23, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was an early term for the Christian movement, for the church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul 
has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God made with hands are not God's. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. They were afraid he'd be killed there. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this is what these Christians in Ephesus were up against. I mean, they were, they were growing, but they were still a tiny minority in Ephesus and a persecuted uh, group of people surrounded by this uh, hostile and sometimes violent paganism. So what did they need to know? What did they need to know? What did they need to hear from the Apostle Paul? They needed to know that God had a plan. They needed to know that God had a plan for their world and their church and their lives. And that's what we need to know too. Because increasingly we're living in a culture that is not very friendly to Christianity. And, and we need to know that God has a plan. He's got a plan for the world He's got a plan for our church, and He's got a plan for our lives as well. Now let's take a look at the, the character of Ephesians this morning. Now, what do we see? What characterizes this letter? First of all, it's a prison letter. Ephesians was written in about 62 A.D. when Paul was in prison probably in Rome. In various parts of the letter, he refers to the fact that he is a prisoner. In 620, he refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. You know, being an ambassador can be a dangerous proposition, as we saw in Benghazi, as our United States ambassador was murdered. And Paul was an ambassador for Christ. He represented Christ. You do too, by the way. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ every day We're as His ambassadors. And being an ambassador for 
Christ had gotten Paul thrown into prison in Rome and in just a couple of more years after he writes this, he was going to be martyred for his faith. You know, we need to look at the, at the persecution that these early Christians uh, went through for Christ. And we need to look at the persecution that brothers and sisters are going through around the world today because of their faith in Christ. And brothers and sisters, shouldn't that make us stand taller for Christ here in America? It's a prison letter. Second, it's a comprehensive letter. More than any other of Paul's letters, Ephesians is cosmic in scope. Uh, you see just the, the wide angle lens here of God's, God's plan. And one of Paul's favorite words in Ephesians is the word all. It occurs more than 50 times in just six chapters. Dr. Curtis Vaughn points to some of the uses of it. In Ephesians, God is said to be working all things after the counsel of His will. He is over all, through all, and in all. He created all things, sums up all things in Christ, and is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Christ sits far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. All things are put in subjection under His feet and He fills all in all. It's a comprehensive letter. Third, it's a doctrinal letter. Chapters 1 through 3 highlight the, the primary doctrinal themes that we see in Paul, including, including the great doctrine of salvation, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So it's a doctrinal letter. And then fourth, it's a practical letter. While chapters 1 through 3 really focus on what God has done for us, chapters 4 through 6 focus on what we are to do in light of what God has done. So chapters 1 through 3, done. Chapters 4 through 6, do. Another way that you could think of it is that chapters 1 through 3 are about our wealth, the spiritual riches that we have been given in Christ. So chapters 1 through 3, our wealth. Chapter 4, 5, and the beginning of chapter 6 through chapter 6 and verse 9 is about our walk, living it out, living out the Christian life every day. So chapters 1 through 3, our spiritual riches, our wealth. Uh, chapter 4, 1 through 6, 9, our walk. And then from chapter 6 and verse 10 through the end of the book, our warfare. We're in spiritual warfare. As believers, seeking to live Christ in this world. We're engaged in spiritual warfare with principalities and powers and demonic forces. And so from 610 through the end of the book, it's teaching us how to stand for Christ in the midst of this kind of world. So it's very practical. And then... Ephesians is, uh, is very, uh, before we leave practicality, it's this combination of uh, doctrine 
uh, and the practicality of it that just make it so powerful. Kent Hughes says this, because Ephesians has such a magisterial theme and because it is so practical, it is also immensely powerful. Ephesians, carefully, reverently, prayerfully considered, will change our lives. It is not so much a question of what we will do with the epistle, but what it will do with us. And then it's a devotional letter. A devotional letter. Ephesians contains whole sections of like ten or more verses that in Greek are just one sentence. One one long sentence where Paul is just caught up in praise or in prayer. It's incredibly devotional. Dr. John Mackey, the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, was, came to Christ as a 14-year-old boy. And that summer that he came to Christ, he said, I, I lived in the pages of my New Testament. And God drew his heart especially to the book of Ephesians. And Mackey says, there I saw a new world. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes toward other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Let's talk some about its theme, the theme of Ephesians. So, Ephesians is about God's purpose and God's plan for the world, the church, and our lives. The world that we are living in is not the world that God created originally. God created a world without sin. A perfect world. But then sin entered the world and and now we live in a broken world. Imagine like a jigsaw puzzle that is beautiful when it's put together. I mean, it's put together and it's like a beautiful painting, a beautiful scene of nature. But imagine that this jigsaw puzzle has just been torn asunder. And so the pieces of the puzzle are all scattered out everywhere on the table and some of them have fallen down on the floor and a few of them have made their way under the couch. I mean, it's a it's broken torn apart. Ephesians is about how God is putting it all back together again. How God is healing and restoring and bringing together His broken world. Now in the Old Testament, God promises and prophesies about a Redeemer, a Rescuer, who's going to come and who's going to restore all things. And then Jesus comes, dies on the cross, takes, our, takes the sins of the world upon Himself so that we can be reconciled to God. And then rises from the dead, conquers death, and with the resurrection of Christ, a new creation is launched. Now, that new creation is going to be consummated when Christ returns. So what happens between the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ? In the age that we now live, what's happening now is that God is calling out a special people to be His own. That's us, the body of Christ. 
God is calling out a people of light in the midst of this dark world. We are to be a people who are shining a, a beacon, a beacon of light to provide hope for the world so that other people can make their way to Jesus Christ. And so in the midst of this broken world, this present darkness, God is creating a new people, a new community, a, a new society. And that's the church. And John Stott says this about it. God's new society is characterized by life in the place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division and alienation, by the wholesome standards of righteousness in place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace in place of hatred and strife, and by unremitting conflict with evil in place of flabby compromise with it. At the same time, the realities of lovelessness and sin in so many contemporary churches are enough to make one weep, for they dishonor Christ, contradict the nature of the church, and deprive the Christian witness of integrity. Yet increasing numbers of church members are seeking the church's radical renewal for the sake of the glory of God and the evangelization of the world. Nothing is more important than that the church should be and should be seen to be God's new society. The world desperately needs to see a transformed people. And that's to be us. Third, we see the source of transformation. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, Paul says. Ephesians highlights the unmerited, undeserved love and mercy and compassion of God towards sinners. That's what grace is all about. And he says it's grace to you. It comes to us as a gift, as he's going to see, tell us in chapter 2. By grace you've been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. God's undeserved kindness and mercy, compassion, love is extended to us as a gift. That is grace. It is grace to you. Grace to you and peace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus as Savior, rest in His finished work, you are put at peace with God. Apart from a relationship with Christ, we're not at peace with God. We may think that we are, but we're not. Because our sins are unforgiven. It's only through trust in Christ that we are put at peace with God. And then not only that, but Philippians 4 tells us that as Christians we're given the peace of God. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God is the peace that we can live with every day, moment by moment in our lives. 
we can have the peace of God which passes all understanding. No matter what you're going through in your life, no matter how bad the circumstances are, how difficult it gets, and it can be awfully painful at times in this broken world, but what should trump everything else in our lives is the fact that we know Christ. And we're going to be with Him forever. That's the greatest reality in our life. And because of that, we can have this peace of God which passes all understanding beyond comprehension. Now the source of both grace and peace is who? He says they're from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't come from money. They're they're not from circumstances. They are not from our job. They are not from boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or kids or good health or being recognized or having some position. They don't come from everybody liking us. They don't come from house or toys or stuff. Grace and peace come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of these things. You know, in Ken Burns' film about Lewis and Clark, there's a scene where they discover the source of the Missouri River. And Meriwether Lewis uh, climbs up this, the side of this mountain. And by this point, the river has become like this, this stream. And they want to find the source of it. And so he climbs up this hill. And there coming out of the side of this mountain is this spring pure and cold and just gushing forth. And it dawns on him, this is the source. This is the spring. This is where it's all coming from. This is the source of the Missouri River. And Meriwether Lewis says in his journals that at that moment he kneeled down and thanked God and cupped his hands and put him into the spring. And he says, Judge then of the pleasure that I felt in allaying my thirst from this pure and ice-cold water. You know, Jesus says in John 4 that anyone who drinks from the spring, from the water that He gives, it will be like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he says in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. As we bow together right now, I want to invite you, if you don't yet know Him, to come to Jesus Christ and have your thirst satisfied. Your soul thirst can only be satisfied by Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world is ever going to be able to satisfy it. Only Jesus can, because He's the source of these spiritual blessings, of grace and peace. Would you turn to Christ right now? Turn from sin and self and trying to do life apart from Him your own way? And turn to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I trust You. I believe that You died for my sins. I believe that You were raised from the dead. And right now, I turn from trying to do life apart from You 
and I turn to you and I trust in your finished work for me. I believe you died for my sins, that you were raised from the dead and I receive you as my Savior, my Lord, my King, my friend. Is that the cry of your heart today? Turn to Jesus. The work has been done. He's done it. And it's offered to you as a gift, but you must receive it. Who'd like to receive Christ today? Turn to Him right now. Welcome Him into your life. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And if this has been your prayer and your desire, I'm going to ask you as others stand just to slip out from where you are. I'm going to be right here at the front. Come and share with me what God has done in your life. We want to celebrate with you and we want to help you to begin in your journey as a new Christian. Or maybe you're here today and you'd say, I want to be a part of this church family. We want to invite you to come. And we want to welcome you. If you need prayer, you want to pray with someone, you've got a need, we want to invite you to come. So Father, now we give you this time of invitation. Lord, would you work in hearts in a supernatural way as only you can. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.